awesome. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Luke 14 this morning is where we be, will be. Luke 14. Um, we are in our fourth week of our summer series uh, entitled, Jesus Said What? Um, and so in this series, what we're doing is we're just looking at the tough, the difficult, maybe the confusing things that it would appear that Jesus says during his earthly ministry. We're just diving into those, uh, breaking them down, walking through them verse by verse, um, and just seeing some of the things that Jesus said that could be misinterpreted, misunderstood, misconstrued, and then uh, just setting them on the right path of, and looking at the real meaning of what uh, Jesus had said, what he really Man, and so uh, that's, that's what we're doing. Last week we looked at and uh, dove into this thought of, of judging, judging others, being judgmental, those kinds of things. As Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Uh, we just really dove in and kind of tore it apart and started to look at what Jesus really meant. Because if you look at that statement, the statement that Jesus makes, it would appear that by today's standards, that, that Jesus was very judgmental. That, that Jesus was very, very brutal and judgmental. But that's not what Jesus came to do, is it? As we looked at what else Jesus says, Jesus says, I didn't come to judge. I came to set the captive free. I came to seek and save the lost. That's what his whole ministry was about. That's what his heart was bent toward, geared toward. And the way that that Jesus did that, the way that Jesus uh, seeked the lost, saved the lost, was first to let them know that they were lost. We made the statement last week that you can't be saved until you realize that you're lost. You, you, you can't come to know Jesus until you realize you don't know Jesus. And so we, we looked at that reality. We talked about that a little bit. And we, uh, see, we saw how Jesus would expose people, th- that he would bring them in. And as they, the, uh, the crowds gathered, he would tell them the truth. And he would be brutally honest as it pertained to the kingdom, as it pertained to their heart, to their lostness. And so we just looked deeper into that last week. We just do- dove in. And so if you missed any of that talk last week, if you missed any of that sermon last week, be sure and catch it on our Facebook page or our website or, or any talk from this series uh, in that matter. If you've missed any of these talks, you can find all that stuff on our Facebook page or web page. And so I'm going to ask you this morning if you would join me as we pray. And then we're going to jump in and we're going to look at another very difficult scripture uh, this morning as it pertains to what Jesus has said. So let's pray. Jesus, we need you. God, I acknowledge the fact that I need you right now in this moment, every moment. God, we as a people are in desperate need for you. And so, God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us. God, through your word, as we open it up, as we look at it, God, that you would interpret for us. God, that you would press upon our heart by way of the Holy Spirit, the things that we need to submit and obey, the things that we need to ask for forgiveness. God, convict us, draw us. Lord Jesus, I pray. God, show us of our great need for you. Show us how difficult it is. God, let us dangle there for a moment, all the while sweeping in and lifting us up and showing us that it's possible to live what you've commanded us and asked us. So God, in this moment, I pray, Lord, that you would convict the lost. God, that you'd convict those that are in sin. God, that you would encourage those that need it. God, that you would just be for us everything that you've promised in this moment. God, we thank you. We praise you in advance for what you're going to do in this place. And we pray. Amen. And so it would appear as the more you look at Jesus, the more you study Jesus, the more you read about Jesus and see some of the things that Jesus says, that he is very unashamed and unafraid of telling people up front the worst. Uh, and it's, if you think about it for a moment, though, as he is brutally honest and, and uh, uh, so willing to tell us the, the worst up front, it's, it's almost refreshing. Uh, we live in a world today that uh, wants to kind of sugarcoat things, that wants to kind of wax things over, pull the wool over our eyes, those kinds of things. And you have Jesus who busts onto the scene, and he does none of that. 
And so it's very refreshing because how horrific would it be if Jesus comes onto the scene and says, man, you're doing great. You're knocking it out. I mean, you're doing so good. You're so awesome. Imagine what the message would be like if he did that, all the while knowing good and well, and the same goes for us in this room, that we're not doing good, that we're not knocking it out, that we're not just uh, got this obedience thing whipped and we're just following everything that God has ever said and doing everything that God has ever said. I mean, I mean how demoralizing would that be if Jesus comes into the scene and he says that, those kinds of things? I mean, that, would that not be horrific? But that's not what we see. What we see is uh, Jesus who is truthful. Jesus who tells us up front the worst. He tells us about the painful cost of being a Christian, of being a follower. And it's rather uh, refreshing, especially living in a world that tells us how great and how awesome we are, all the while knowing good and well that we're not. Knowing good and well that we blow it and that we mess up and that we struggle. And that for many of us this week, we walk into this. We don't walk into this place, but rather we limp into this place. And so the thing I love about Jesus is that he doesn't hide stuff in the small print. He has no small print. It's all big and bold out there for everyone to see. And it's very costly. Come and be my disciple is what he invites us to do. But he tells us the truth of what that looks like and what that means. He is up front with us, but not Satan. No, church, no. Satan wants to hide the worst and only show the best. All that really matters as it pertains to Satan is the, the small print on the back page. He doesn't want you to turn there. No, on the front page in big, bold letters are the words, You will not surely die, Genesis. Says this to Jesus, All these I will give to you if you will just fall down and worship me. Matthew 4, 9. But on the back page, Satan has the small print. So small you can only read it with a magnifying glass, what it says. And it would say or read something like this, And after the fleeting pleasures of this world... You will suffer with me forever. That's what it would read. And so the call of Jesus is not just a call of, of suffering and self-denial. It is first a call to a banquet. He invites us to feast and, and to, uh, to the banquet. And so the point of this parable here in Luke chapter 14, that's what we're going to see uh, unfold. That's what we're going to see take place and happen. Jesus promises a glorious resurrection where all the losses of life will be repaid. Luke 14, 14 tells us. Uh, that's what he invites us to. He tells us that he will help us endure the hardships of this life, Luke twenty-two thirty-two. He tells us our Father will give us the Holy Spirit, Luke eleven thirteen. He promises that even if we are killed for this kingdom, that not a hair on our head will perish. And so all of this means that when we sit down to calculate the cost, when we sit down to look, is it really worth following Jesus? When we weigh the worst and the best, what we will get in the end is that it is well worth following Jesus with everything in us compared to not. And so he is abundantly worth it. So don't, whatever you do, don't buy the lie of Satan. And so today we're going to look at some of the words that would appear very, very difficult, very, very mean, very, very hurtful, very, very harsh. But when we hear the heart behind what Jesus is saying, when we really look at what he means when he says these difficult words, it will make perfect sense. So let's dive in. Luke 14, 25. Luke 14, 25. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen for you. Jesus says this. It says, Now the great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, 
And so it would appear as the crowds get larger and larger and larger, uh, Jesus gets more intentional with them. As the crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger, his teaching gets more focused and more intentional and more serious and more homed in on some very difficult things. And and so as you read the scriptures, and and we know what the church is about, the church really hasn't busted onto the scene yet. Jesus is investing his life uh, with these disciples, with these men that are following him. He's pouring into them. He's very intentional, walking with them uh, day to day, sending them out, giving them opportunities, doing all of, this, all of these things with his disciples to model and show, it would appear as though uh, Jesus has kind of got this thing backwards. Uh, because shouldn't he draw a crowd first? Shouldn't he get a large following, a large group of people to come after him first? And then, okay, now we can train them up. But it seems as though Jesus has inverted that and Jesus is doing it the opposite. It's as if he, he starts with the small and then he works his way to the large. But Jesus really doesn't even do a very good job with the large. I mean, if, if you're about starting a church, getting this movement with your name on it started, would you not want to get as many people as you possibly could? And so what it appears is though, is Jesus runs everybody off. The crowds get larger and gather around him, and he just runs them off. All I know is that Jesus would not be a very good uh, church growth seminar speaker. He's not one that I'm going to uh, invite here say, okay, Jesus, give us, uh, tell us what to do to grow our church. Because it's almost as if he does the opposite. Or does he? Or does he? Because as the crowds get larger and he gets more intentional, more serious, and more focused about what his movement, who he is, what he's about, they fall away, but the few. And it's almost as if, okay, now we've got a group we can start with. Now we can get going. Now we can be intentional and focused on what I've come to do. So it would appear, as, as we read the scriptures, he does a better job of running people off than pulling people in. But what we know about Jesus is this, is that he's focused, is he not? Focused. He, he knows what's, what's in front of him. He knows what's coming. He knows that the cross lies ahead of him and what's about to, uh, about to come for him. He, he's aware and he understands and he knows that, does he not? So if anything, I would say Jesus is all the more focused. I mean, think about this for a moment. What would you do differently in your life if you knew that you had three and a half years left to live? So so when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist to the day that he hangs on the cross, it's about a three and a half year period in between that. And and so Jesus was aware. Jesus knew that the cross lied before him. Over in Genesis, when sin enters the world, he knows that he's going to be the sacrificial lamb to take the place of fallen man, to pay a price that we could never pay, to purchase and redeem us. He knows that. And so when he is born as a little babe, as he grows into a man, he understands the the mission that's been set before him. And so think about it for a moment. We think he's crazy and he should do a better job of uh, being all-inclusive and getting everybody in and kind of waxing over people's feelings and making them feel better. Uh, Those kinds of thoughts run through our mind. But but think about it for a moment. Three and a half years. That's all you got. That's all you've been given. And so I guess as I thought about this this week, my question for you is this, is if you knew you had three and a half years to live, what would you do differently? What would you change what would your intentionality look like? How, how serious would you be of the things that are of utmost importance? And if I can lovingly, lovingly just press you for a moment, you better get on with it. Because what I've known from Scripture and what I've read in the Word is that we're not even promised three and a half years. We may not make it three and a half days. And so I guess my thought is this, why Why wait? Why think that you're promised tomorrow when you're not even guaranteed the next breath that you've got? 
But the thing I love about Jesus is that he starts doing it right then. He doesn't, he doesn't wait. He, he is in uh, mission mode. He is in uh, uh, his purpose mode. So he didn't waste any of his time. Of man. Right for the heart of man. And that's what we see take place. That's what we see happen here in these scriptures. Verse 26 says this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's the difficult words of Jesus. What is he talking about? That's not very nice, is it? That's not very acceptable. I've got a seven-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. I can remember with my uh, seven-year-old, we were in Walmart. This was before Bennett, my three-and-a-half, comes along. We're in Walmart, and we'd been looking. And, and, and like, I made a deal with him in the parking lot, which you should never negotiate with a three-year-old. It never ends well for you. And so I make this deal with him uh, in the parking lot before we go in. I'm like, okay, buddy, we're going to go in. And his, like, his, his thought is toys, toy, toy. It's kind of like Finding Nemo. Like, like, toy, toy, toy. I'm like, oh, hold up, hold up. I'll make a deal with you, buddy. And he's like, all ears. He's like, okay, dad's caving. And I'm like, this is what we're going to do. We've got to get something. But we'll make a swipe through the toy aisle. I'll even let you hold it and touch it, which is never, a, never, never a good thing. And so I, we make the swipe, and he looks, and, and it's time to go. I've already got my part first that I needed to get. I got it. I've, he looks at the toys. He's touching it. He's holding it. I'm like, all right, buddy, time to put it up. And you could just see devastation. But you said, I know exactly what I said. And this is the, this is, this is the deal we worked out. But for a three-year-old, he don't do deals like we do deals. Well, maybe he does do deals like we do. Anyways, another sermon for another day. And so we, we get there, and then we finally get up to, we finally get up to the counter. And like, he is like in full-fledged like, like throw a fit mode. You know what I'm saying? Like, like fall apart. Like the world is ending mode. And so me as a dad, I'm in line with the buggy, our thing. He's in it because i got to keep him contained. And so he's in it. There, and then there's like these women in front of me and a woman behind me, and they're just looking at me. And I'm like, dang it, dude. You're, you're, gonna, you're asking me to do this right now, Brody. You're, you want me to do this. And it's like I'm having this conversation with him in my head, and they're just looking and smiling at me. And I'm thinking, oh, what are they? it's hard to tell what they're thinking. And I said, Brody, stop. And then he does it. He takes a shot at the heart. I not like you. <laughs> you don't? Well, if you don't like me now, Bobo, what's about to happen? You're going to like me even less. Because now you have forced my hand. And we can handle like a little falling apart fit. But we can't handle it. You're doing it out loud now with words. Daddy don't play. So what did I do? What every good and loving father should do. I wore his tail out right there. And those women just, well, bless you, bless you, honey. That was, I had never in my life been so, I don't know what I was. New dad falling apart. I, I mean, I didn't, uh, this is crazy. But, but I, and I mean, like, I'm not, like, I'll spank, but I don't spank unless they ask for a spanking. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, they've never physically asked, hey, dad, beat me right now. Or uh, I, I, don't, I don't beat my kids, but, but they don't, they don't. They don't ever, please spank me, I need it so bad. No, they've never done that. But, but there comes a point where they cross the line. I'm like, okay, there's, there's no point of return, Bo. Like, we're doing this. I, I don't want to, but you've asked me to, and now we're going to do it. And so, so it was that kind of moment. But when he looked at me and said, I'm not like you, it's almost as if, like what Jesus is saying, if you do not hate, because that's the word that I would never teach my boys to say. 
And now we've got the King of Kings saying it in the scriptures. And this stuff's inspired, right? I mean, this is the word of God speaking to us. And he uses the word hate, which is a word we don't use in the Miller house. What do I do? What happens? It's Brody and the buggy saying, I'm not like you. And now God's dropping it. And I'm like, what happened? What do we need to do here? And so we need to press in and we need to see what Jesus really means. Because even with that logic, that thinking, there's some issues even within itself in the scriptures, is there not? But there can't be because God's word's perfect. God's word's pure. God's word's uh, uh, indefallible. So the issues are this. What does Jesus mean by hate? By hate our fathers. And why in the world would he talk this way? Why would he say these things? Because in Matthew 19, Jesus calls us to honor our fathers. In Matthew 22, 39, he commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. In Matthew 5, 44, he tells us to love our enemies. He also, over in John 13, 35, commands us to love one another. So in these scriptures, there's a, a sense in which we must love our fathers even though we must hate them. How do we do that? What does he mean? And I believe John 12 will, will shed some light on what Jesus is talking about here. I believe John 12, 24 will help us understand a little bit deeper the meaning of what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says this in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So what Jesus is saying here is that we must hate our lives in order to keep our lives for, eternal, for eternity. To gain eternal life, we've got to hate our life. And keeping them for eternal life is a, is a good thing, is it not? That's forever and ever and ever with Jesus. And so the desire to keep them for eternal life is a way of loving our lives. It's a way of taking care of us. And in order to do that, we've got to hate them. It, it kind of seems like an oxymoron. It seems like two ends of the spectrum. So what does this mean? What is Jesus really saying? See, we will be called to make choices in this world that look as if we hate our lives in the sense of caring very little for their well-being. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is asking us to do. For example, we may have to die for Christ. There may come a day where we're faced with that reality. I know that it happens every day in our world. I know that there's other countries where it's illegal to gather like this. I know that there's other countries where uh, there's no way that you can just um, gather and, and open up God's word in a public place like this where everybody knows where you gather. That You've got to be secret and you've got to be hidden because uh, the authorities could bust in at any time and take you out and, and execute you in a moment. I was talking to someone, and I can't remember, uh, but someone here, I believe, and we were talking about how, um, uh, maybe it was after Wednesday night service, but, but in talking back and forth, he was telling me that there's this people group. It may have been in China, I can't remember, but there's this people group uh, that what they do is they gather just to memorize the Bible. They can take our Bibles, but they can't take what's hidden in our heart. And so what they've done is they've memorized the New Testament. Like, like we only know the highlights. And a few verses, John three sixteen. Romans 10, 9, maybe a few more in between. Jesus wept, because that's a short and easy one, right? But, but they memorized the Bible. And their heart and their hope is that one day when they face their executioner, all they can do is proclaim and preach the good news of Jesus Christ to the man that's going to take their life. So this is a real deal. This means a ton for the people as Jesus writes this. 
And we have to die. Revelation 2, says, 10 says this. It says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So to the world, this will look like the ultimate self-hate. Almost as if you're throwing your life away. But Jesus says what you're doing is you're actually finding your life. You're actually finding your life. So let's read this again and let's look at it and break it down a little bit. Verse 26 there in Luke. It says this, it says, if anyone comes to me. And so Jesus seems to put this clause on a lot of the things that he says, if... Because when he invites someone to come to him, it's, this invitation is there, but it's going to cost a good bit. And the reality is this, when Jesus invites, not everybody comes. Jesus has probably been inviting people in this room for years and years and years to come to him, and they've, they've never come to him. And so he says, if anyone comes to me, that if anyone comes to me, and then he goes on and he tells us what those requirements are. He says, and does not hate. There it is, that dirty word that we don't say in our house. That we don't let our kids talk like that. What does Jesus mean? In the original language here, whenever he uses this word hate, it's not like what we portray it in English, right? Our language is so just kind of straightforward and, and muddy-like, and, and we, we overlap words so often, and we, uh, we lose the meaning and the weight of certain things that we say, but, but not in this language. When Jesus uses the word hate here, it means to love less. It means to love less. So if anyone comes to me and does not love less... Love less than. Then he says his own father and mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. Okay, so it's making a little bit more sense. So, so what, let's, let's read like that. If anyone comes to me and does not love less his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, I, I can get down with that. Like, like, I get that. I understand. Okay, so it's not hate like what we think hate. It's not a despise like what we think despise is. It's to love less. That's what Jesus is saying. To love mom and dad less than Jesus. As great as mom and dad are, we're to love them less than Jesus. We're to love Jesus more than mom and dad. So what am I doing in my life right now? I'm trying to teach my boys this principle. Love us. We want you to love us because you have to take care of us one day. But there's a man that you need to love far more than me and mom. There's one that you need to obey far more than me and mom. There's one that you need to be willing to give your life for far more than me and your mother. And so we see what Jesus is saying here. Love less mom and dad. And so we move away. And we're like, okay, we get that. As we distance ourselves, maybe we move away from mom and dad. We don't get to spend as much time with them. We don't get to talk to them as much. Okay, okay. We kind of get down with that. We can kind of go that route a little bit. We move out all that good stuff. But your wife, she's always around you. She's always there. So I've got to love Jesus more than I do my wife. He says, if you want to be his disciple, I've got to love Jesus more than I do my husband. If, if you're going to be his disciple, you do, ladies. Absolutely. That's, that's what he's talking about here. That's what he's saying. But don't we so often put our spouses in the place of Jesus? Don't we so often put requirements and expectations on them that, that, that they can't meet the weight that they'll crumble under? A, a, a love and desire for that spouse more than even for Jesus. Because it's a weight that they can't bear. So you've got to fight with you against, against that feeling, against that thought. Everything in you that's contrary to what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is teaching here. So when I do weddings and even in the premarital counseling leading up to it, and then when we stand there that day, I always want to make a point to say this in front of the crowd, in front of these two that I'm going to marry. I always say these words. I look at them in the eye in front of everybody that they've invited, that they love and they care so much for. 
And I look at the, the groom and I say, you love Jesus more than you love this woman. You hear me? And then I'll turn to the bride and I'll say, look at me. You love Jesus far more than you love this man. Because it's in that love for Jesus you know how to love a man. And all the women said, amen, right? But man, it's the same thing. In your love for Jesus, you will learn and know how to love her like Christ has called you and expects you to. Every time, because it's so easy to get those swapped. It's so easy to, to trade places and to love and desire and want your spouse even more than Jesus. And he just gets more difficult and more difficult with it. And it depends on what stage your kid is in. But listen, he even says even your children, to love less your children than you do Jesus. That you're to love Jesus much more than you do your kids. Much more is what he's saying. But we do the same thing with them as we do with our spouses and as we do with other relationships. We put them in the place of where Jesus should be. Do we not? And hear me, your kids can't handle it. Your spouse can't handle it. Again, you love your kids through Jesus. You show that love looks like through Jesus. Because what I've learned is this, is that whatever you love and desire over Jesus, that has become your God. And what Jesus says that is, is an idol, and your idol needs to be destroyed. Because he wants it all. He's an all or nothing God. Every ounce of you is what he wants. He, he can't have like 99% of it, and then you still have 1% toward your spouse or 1% toward your kids. No, no, you fully invest, love, desire, walk with, yearn for him 100%. And through that love for him, now you can love your spouse. Now you can love your kids. Now you can do it the way that Jesus calls you to do it. And what Jesus is saying is this, is that when you do that, when the world sees you live that way, when the world sees you act like that, it almost looks like hate toward your spouse. And I'm not talking about talking rough with her. I'm not talking about mistreating her. I'm not talking about not serving her. I'm not talking about being rough with her like the world says to be rough with her. I'm talking about your love for Jesus should, Jesus, Jesus should supersede your love for your spouse, for your kids. To the point of where the world looks at that. It's like, why, what's up with this? Do you not love your wife and your kids? Absolutely, but I've got them in the right order. I love them like Christ has called me to love them. So it's almost like he uses this and kind of uh, gives us these blows, these little blows for a moment before he gives us the, the, the death blow. And so look at what he says as he finishes this verse. He says, yes, even his own life. Crud. Okay, okay. I, Jesus more than my wife. Jesus more than my, my, uh, my kids. I, okay, yeah, I get that. But I've got to love Jesus more than me. Nobody loves me like me. Nobody cares for me like me. Nobody desires me like me. Nobody thinks I'm the greatest like I think I'm the greatest. And so what Jesus is asking me to do is to put that to death even hate your own life? I mean, do you know how many people refuse to love Jesus more than themselves? And all this is doing is showing whether or not you belong to him. Because, right, what did he say earlier? If you do not uh, uh, hate, love less. And he gives us that list and he ends that list with us. If you do not, then what does he say? You can't be my disciple. You're not my follower. And we're not going to get into that little game that we like to play. Yeah, but I believe in him and I'm a saved. So I can be a saved person without a disciple. That's crazy. That's crazy talk. Like, I want to be a married guy without a ring and a ceremony. I mean, how ridiculous is that? What it's saying is this, is that we want the benefits of Jesus without having Jesus. That kind of thinking that's infiltrated the church, that's infiltrated our culture and our world, that's what that is. 
I want the benefits of Jesus without ever having to obey Jesus or submit to Jesus or do the difficult things that Jesus asks me to do. And what Jesus says is you, you don't get one without the other. You don't get one without the other. And so he lands for us the death blow here. The death blow. I, mean, I can't even begin to imagine. And then like I said earlier, this is how he ends that verse. He cannot be my disciple. It's tough, isn't it? My relationship with my wife, with my kids, even myself has to look like hate compared to that of Jesus. That's tough. That's downright impossible, is it not? God, he's an all or nothing. That's, that's the way that he is. That's, that's what his word says. But what I've learned is this, is that he is worthy of our greatest love and devotion. And he is one that won't share that with anyone. So if you have a relationship in your life where you love others more than Jesus, you can't be his disciple. I'm just echoing what Jesus has said. I'm just telling you the hard truth that Jesus addresses in this verse. Now you see why he's not big on, we would not be big on having him as our keynote speaker for a church growth seminar. How will we ever grow the church that way? I'll tell you the way we grow the church is one person at a time that are serious, devoted, the things that Jesus has said. And that's what Jesus is interested in. He knows he's going to die. He knows that this thing can't stop with him. The hearts of men and women lie in the balance. So he's very, very serious. Then he goes a step further and he says this. He says, whoever does, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Here he goes. Die to self, die to self, die to self. Because what's the cross? The cross is just a, an, an execution. It's not, it's a gruesome, it's a horrific way to die. So what he's saying is this, the way, that, the way that you think, the way that you live, your actions, your reactions, your thoughts, everything. Jesus calls us to die and then come to him is what he calls us to. The reason why he's saying these kinds of things, the reason why he has this difficult talk here in this moment with the large crowd is because he wants to expose their, their self-protective reflex to reject the way that he's talking. The reason why this is here this morning is because he wants us, he wants us to do the exact same thing. He wants to expose our self-protective reflex. Well, he couldn't have meant hate, or he couldn't have meant every ounce of me, or he couldn't have meant this, or he couldn't have meant there's no way, but he means what he means, and he never changes what he means. He's up front with everybody. So for you this morning, if you don't know Jesus, one of the greatest things you can ever do is surrender your life and give it away for Jesus. Believe in him. But the most difficult thing that you will ever do is give your life to Jesus and live for him day to day. But the thing I love and appreciate about him is you don't find that out six months later. I hope the bills come in. What are you talking about, a bill? Well, look at the interest rate. Or look at the little, well, it was in the fine, fine print. Jesus doesn't do fine print. Jesus does the big bold print and he lays it all out there from the very beginning. And so this is why Jesus is so offensive to so many. Their world was no different than ours. I mean, we may have some technology and some little things different than theirs, but th their hearts are no different. We, we have not evolved as much as we think that we have evolved. Uh, still self-seeking, still wicked and sinful to the core, Still all about me and my pleasure and my likes and my wants. And there's no way that Jesus can just, who does he think he is busting up in here saying those kinds of things? Same world. Same world that we live in. 
we may be able to post about it, and they couldn't post about it, but it's the exact same world that, that we're living in the same thing. We just got a few more toys than they had. But no different. No different. And so, so he knew the reaction the word hate would get. And so he's putting things in the most extreme, I believe, to test us. Will we bow to his radical claim on our lives? All natural relations in jeopardy for the sake of the kingdom. Will we let him do that? Will we submit to that? Will we put our lives to death for the sake of his? And then it's almost as if Jesus tells this little story, kind of follow up, to get the people thinking all the more. Verse 28, it says this. It says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first go and sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it, otherwise when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and uh, deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him or who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the others are yet a great way off, he sends a delegation to ask them for terms of peace. And so what Jesus does is just tell this little story of, of um, impresses on the people the great cost of being his. All of that's about cost. Are you willing to lose that many people? Are you willing to build that kind of a building without that kind of a foundation? That's all he's doing. Is the cost worth it for you? But church, hear me, oh, how it's worth it. How it is so worth it. And no, this is not one of those get your best life now type moments. That, no, you don't get your best life here. I'm just going to, the big fine print, you don't get your best life not here. I mean, look at what he's saying. You've got to die to self. You've got to die to your wants and your desires. Oh, and by the way, they may come and kill you for that. Does that sound like your best life now? Look at the Apostle Paul. Where in the world was that your best life now? Look at Peter. Look at the disciples. Where is that your best life now? They end up dead for their faith. Not in a mansion down on the corner. Not driving their souped-up camel up and down the, the streets of Jerusalem. No. They end up hanging upside down on a cross. They end up beheaded is what they end up. So there's a great cost, but that cost is so worth it. And my question for you is this, what does following Jesus cost you? Because what I've learned in life is this, is if it hasn't cost you much, chances are it's not worth very much. Did you catch that? What does it cost you to follow Jesus? Because if it hasn't cost you much, chances are you following Jesus isn't worth much. And it'll be something that you abandon. It'll be easier to slip into sin. It'll be easier to take your eyes off Jesus. It'll be easier to do whatever it is that your flesh and your desires want over what Jesus wants. And so now Jesus is going to sum this thing up. And this is what he says. He says, so therefore, and therefore again just points us back to what he just previously said. As a result of what I just said, now... He sums everything up and he gets to the heart of what he's saying. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There he goes. Mom, dad, wife, brother, sister, kids. Your own life. And it's as if it's like, it's if like we don't hear good or hear well or we don't listen right. He, he, just, he says it all over again. If you're not willing to renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. We see, we see what he's saying here. We get to the bottom of what, what he's meaning by, by this word hate, love less. And so renouncing means just counting everything as loss. And this is what happens at conversion. This is what happens when we come to faith. This is why we can't be saved till we realize that we're lost. Because when you realize that you're lost and you have nothing and that you're undone and that you're in your sin and, and what your sin means, what eternity means separated from God. 
then what do you do? You run to the one that has everything and that can do anything about it. Jesus describes this conversion in a parable. And, and he, says like, he says it like this. He says that the kingdom of heaven is it's like a treasure that's been, that's been buried in a field. And there's a certain man that comes by, and when he finds it, you know what he does with that treasure? He runs and he covers it up. He wants to hide it and conceal it. Because it's so precious and it's so valuable and it's so great. And then in Matthew 13, 44, listen to what it says. Jesus says that this man, in his joy, so he has found something of great value, the most valuable thing ever. He finds it, he hides it because he doesn't want to lose it. And then in his joy, there is gladness and contentment in what he's about to do. He goes and he sells all that he has. Everything. Ah, but I've got this, and I've got that that I want to hold on to. But, but that treasure in the field, don't forget the treasure in the... Yes, but, but this... Oh, there's none of that. It says in his joy, he goes, he sells every... We're having an estate sale tomorrow. Come and get it. I want nothing left. Nothing. I'll sell it for pennies. I don't care. I want nothing left. Why? Because I have found the treasure above all treasures is what he says. So in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and then he buys that field. That's what he does. He buys that field. Church, that's a picture of salvation. Have you sold all that you've got? And I'm not talking about your physical house. I'm not talking about your car. What do you value and hold on and want more than Jesus? Because that is your Jesus. That is your God, not Jesus himself. And so when you finally get to the point and God is glorious and gracious and loving enough to reveal and show you that there's something that you say no to to him, and you finally enjoy going and sell everything. He's selling all you have with joy in order to have the treasure of the kingdom. It's just a terrible way of saying count everything as lost to gain Christ. Count everything as lost in order to gain Christ. Everything. My house, yeah. Jesus is so much more better than your house. I mean, your, your shingles won't even last your lifetime probably. You know, you know what I'm saying? The wood will deteriorate. Jesus is so much greater than that. You mean my car? Yes, your car. You mean my kids? Yes, Jesus is greater than your kids. That's what he's saying here. You mean my spouse, and she's great, and she's awesome, and she does. Yes, even love Jesus more than your spouse. Absolutely. Because she or he is a bum Jesus in your life. They can't do what Jesus can do, ever. Don't worship them. They can't handle that weight. That's what Jesus is telling us. Love him far more than them. Love him far more than your kids. Love him far more than anything and everything in your life. That's what Jesus is saying. Make it look like hate compared to loving him. So church, to become a Christian is to awaken from the blindness of spiritual death. And to find Jesus so all-sufficient and all-satisfying that one, we love him so much more than every other relationship in our life to a point where it looks like hate. To two, we count everything as a loss. Three, we renounce all of our possessions. And I'm talking in parable language here, but we sell and we have to possess the treasure of the field. That's what true salvation, that's what a relationship with Jesus looks like. That's what he is calling and inviting. He, he invites the crowd, man. That's what I, He's all-inclusive. Oh, but there are stipulations that are heavier than people want to bear. So if you desire to come after me, if you desire to come after me, 
Because the sad reality is this, not everyone will come. The invitation is there, but hearts are far away, and they value and they love and they want stuff contrary to that of Jesus. Just like the crowd a few weeks ago. We're hungry. Perform a trick for us, Jesus, and then we'll love you and follow you. All the while we know good and well they won't. They just have an ache in their stomach and they want it filled. You've just got an ache in your stomach and you want Jesus to be your all, all ever satisfying magician. The benefits of what Christ brings without the fellowship and the devotion and the life well spent for him. So as the band comes back up, I want to close with this thought. What does it mean to renounce? What, what does that mean when Jesus says here at the end and he gets to the heart of what he's talking about? What does he mean by when he says renounce? When he says renounce all, counting all as loss, it means that if we must choose between Christ and anything else, every time we choose Jesus, if we're forced with the decision to choose, we're always going to choose Jesus. Look at me, I love you to death, but I'm going to choose Jesus over you. I love my boys to death, but I'm going to choose Jesus over you. I love you in this room, but I'm going to choose Jesus over everyone in this room. Because he's all and everything for me, and nobody in this room can do it. Nobody in this room can be that for me. Nobody in this room can be that for anybody else. So when you're faced with the decision, renouncing all means that you pick Jesus every time, regardless of how great and how glorious the other option is. Renouncing all, counting it all as a loss, means that we will deal with everything in a way that draws us near to Christ so that we may gain more of Jesus and enjoy him all the more by the way that we relate to everything. Pronouncing all means we're going to draw closer to Jesus. We're going to walk closer to Jesus. And as we walk closer to Jesus, it's going to give us a greater understanding, a greater appreciation, a greater love, and a greater desire for Jesus. Renouncing all, counting it all as loss means that we will seek to deal with the things of this world in a way that shows that, we are, that they are not our treasure, but rather that Jesus is our treasure. What's the one thing you can't live without? And if it's not Jesus, then that's a problem. If it's not Jesus, then there's an issue. What's the one thing that you're, you've got to have and you're always going to go for? And maybe, maybe a good kind of illustration way to push a little bit here is if this was taken away now, how hard would you fight for it or what would it do to you? If this was stripped, if it's a house, if it's a new car, if it's a this, if it's a job, if it's a promotion, if it's a, a relationship, if it's a... And I'm not saying it wouldn't be devastating. I'm not saying it wouldn't be difficult. It wouldn't crush you. But at the end of the day, you still get Jesus if that's your response. You hurt and you mourn and you walk through that. Oh, but I've got Jesus. That's what renouncing looks like. And the last one is this, renouncing all, counting it all lost, means that if we lose any or all the things of this world that it can offer, we will not lose our joy, we will not lose our treasure, we will not lose our life because Christ is our joy and our treasure and our life. Everything can be stripped. But renouncing all means that I've still got Jesus and nobody can take Jesus from me. Nobody. Take my life, you can take my stuff, you can take everything that I've got. You can't take my Jesus. You can't take my Jesus. So whatever you do, don't tame the radical teachings of Jesus. Don't try to soften the blow of what Jesus says. I know that's the tension in our world. Jesus is just hateful. No, you're just lost. 
Jesus is just mean. No, you just don't understand what Jesus is saying. Because hear me, I've tasted and I've seen it. I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. The dumb little jank illustration that I use is that when you're in college and you're poor and you have nothing, you eat ramen noodles all the time just to, to make it, right? I know it's a source of sustenance in your stomach. It's not nutrition. It's not good for you, but, but it's ramen noodles and it'll get you by. Maybe to that next paycheck, maybe to that whatever. And then, then you graduate and you get your job and you got a little bit of money and you have a steak. If you're a vegetarian here, think of tomato plant. I don't know. Whatever vegetarians eat. Salad. I don't know. Whatever it is that you just got, you get a taste of. I haven't lost anything. I've gained everything. And I've been able to taste and see. I don't care if I ever eat a ramen noodle again in my life. Because I've had steak. I've had that good sustenance that gives nutrition. That pulls me through. That's what Jesus is. That's what Jesus is. So don't. Don't tame the teachings. Don't soften the blow of what Jesus says. Let it sit there. If they make you uncomfortable, let them do their work. That's just God working. That's the Holy Spirit rubbing. And hear me, we've got a lot of stuff that he needs to rub off, that he needs to send down, that he needs to work through. His teachings, his difficult words, his, he said what, are designed to create real disciples who lose it all for the cost and the gain of Jesus. So the world may call it hate, they call, may call it foolishness, but church, hear me, it's not. It is a love and it is intended to draw us to God. That's what it is. So I don't know what God stirred in your heart this morning. I don't know what you need to do a better job of hating. And when I say hating, loving less than Jesus, but you be obedient. Whatever the Holy Spirit has stirred in your heart, has stirred in your life to show you and draw you even closer to Jesus, you run to that with everything in you. So if you do not hate, love less, you cannot be my disciple. Are you his disciple? Might be the place you need to start with. Are you his? Whatever God stirred, you respond. These guys are going to lead us. I'm going to be here. If you need somebody to pray with you, Tyler's here. I'm here. If you need to come pray, if God's convicted you, whatever he's called you to do, you be obedient to his leading. Jesus, help us this morning in this place to be obedient, to do what you've called us to do. Got tough words, words that I fail miserably. There's a lot of things in this world that I love that probably don't even come close to looking when it's compared to my love for you. God, forgive me. Draw me. Help me. God, help us as a people. And then we pray. Amen. You stand. You respond as God leads. These guys are going to lead us.